All right, my check marks are in line. We'll see what happens here. All right, and you can see that people uh, are starting to come into the room. And let me uh, let me go ahead, and we're going to play the introduction and get things on on the way. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us live. And today I've got a very special guest. I'm joined by Ed Combs. Ed, how are you today? David, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, it, this is great. And I, you know, you and I bumped into each other and, and met each other at an event. And within just a few minutes, I learned a very important detail about you because you're not like most financial planners out there, are you? No, no, I have blue eyes. Oh, wait, no, there's probably plenty of us that have blue eyes. No, I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I've developed a uh, real specialty around financial therapy and working with couples. Financial therapy. So, so that's a term I haven't heard before. So, so how would you describe this? Yeah, you know, I think the simplest way to say it is we all have a relational history with money. We've all had a, a wide variety of experiences with money. And those experiences can have pain associated with it, whether it's shame or regret or sadness or loss. And so those painful emotional experiences around money, if they're not attended to, can accumulate and create financial trauma. So the question then becomes, how do we use therapy skills to help alleviate psychological pain associated with money? Okay. So I understand therapy and I understand financial planning. I see how you, you brought these things together to work on people's behavior based on examining their past potentially traumatic events. Can you tell us the story of how you ended up in this role and working with people in this way? You know, I was a little boy and I dreamed of what do I want to be when I grow up? No, this <laughs> is not that story, right? More, it was, I was a little boy raised in a family, you know, my father was an electrician, my mom was a teacher's aide, so very modest working class family. But I always kind of aspired to wealth. I saw, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous with the hot show in my, in my generation. There's equivalents today, there's probably equivalents before that. But I wanted to figure out how money worked. I, I could see that they had nicer trips and nicer cars, right? And so that's mm -hmm. set me on this big, long journey of, I was a professional firefighter, I sat around, heard the guys kind of complain about their wives and money. And so I thought, oh, I know I'll become a financial planner. We also had a planner working with, with the firefighters. Well, I learned about how money works technically, got married and start trying to tell my wife, this is what we should do because, you know, I'm the CFP, I'm the MBA. And, uh, right. You're, you're the expert about money in the couple. So you then assume that this would then grant you the authority to be taking care of that stuff. Seems logical on one hand. 
But anybody that's been married or in an intimate relationship for a long time knows that's not how it works, right? You may be the expert, but your partner still has their own expertise, their own lived experience around money and perspective. And they don't have all that accumulated knowledge and assumptions about how money works. And so you're now navigating between two people that have very different assumptions about how money works. And so what I didn't know is what to do when my wife didn't see the value of buying her own dental practice. I could read all the trade publications, only the projections, run the numbers and say, why are we not doing this? 95 plus percent success rate, slam dunk, higher household income and wealth because we're gonna have an asset. This all makes perfect sense to me. But there was a reluctance, a, a pushback and I couldn't figure it out. And, I, and so, cause I was treating it as a very logical problem. Yeah. Run the numbers, the numbers support it, let's do it. And what, so, and so when, like, I mean, um, let's look at that kind of scenario within say a couple that you're working with. When one person says, you know, this is totally obvious that we should be doing this thing. And the other person says, I don't see it. What, what kind of sort of background and stories or probing can you get into to reveal why the person may not share the opinion? You know, one of the first things, and I am looking for, I don't necessarily tell couples right away, but what I'm looking for are past family financial failures, big losses. So family bankruptcies, family, you know, kind of lying, cheating, stealing around money in very everyday language, hmm. you know, um, oftentimes there'll be stories around addiction and money that have shown up. And so there's the sense that money is dangerous. It's scary. It's not safe. It's not predictable. Those are the kind of financial traumas, if you will. Right. And those are either consciously or unconsciously shaping that expectation about, will this work out for me individually, regardless of what the, all the numbers say, who am I individually? And can I make this work out? So even if it logically, I can nod my head and say, yeah, I understand 95% success rate, but maybe I'm the 5%. Okay. So, right. so you, you, you had this, uh, uh, differing point of view about, about buying a dental practice, I guess was the case that you right. used. Right. And so when did you realize that the experience you were having in your own marriage could then be extrapolated into an actual business where you could provide this kind of help to other people? Yeah, I wish that I could say like a light bulb. This was the day that I had the conversion experience, but it was really more a kind of a dimmer switch. You know, it was progressively building on itself. And, you know, I alluded to, I was a professional firefighter for the first five years of my career. I think those were early seeds planted that like you couple fight about money. Like I had seen in my own family, some stuff and then saw that. And so it was talking with my wife, hearing from friends, trying to work as an advisor, seeing other things happening in my family as I'm maturing, growing more people in intimate relationships. I'm like, man, this is a big issue. This is a big problem. And you know, there's plenty of research says money is the number one source of stress in people's life. In couples life, you know, you ask most people, well, why do people they divorce? Well, it's because of the money. Well, it is and it isn't if you get technical about it. But financial conflict can create major distress between couples. Um, and so just realizing there's a huge opportunity. The way couples are being served is, is not solving the problem. So now as a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified financial planner, I get clients that have been to either professional 
And so they've been really helpful in some ways, but there's been this gap in other ways. Okay. Let, let, let's let's hang on to that for a moment. We've got a bunch of people here that are that have gathered in to uh, to participate. We've got uh, Victor who signed in from the UK, and uh, Victor wants to let all the rest of you watching that uh, he's hit the like button. So make sure that you guys do as well. It really helps the YouTube algorithm and, and the other platforms too. If you happen to be on some of them, to know that it's good content. Uh, Kevin's joining us from uh, Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kevin, good to see you here again today. And we've got uh, Jason who's come in from Seattle, Washington. And for any of you that are live, if you want to put questions uh, in the chat, we will be addressing questions as the show progresses. And today we're talking all about uh, business and finances and marriage relationships. Because as we're going to get into, of course, a lot of the people that Ed works with who are having financial disagreements or discussions, et cetera, in their marriage, a lot of it has to do with business ownership. Uh, Ed, just before I, I paused there, you made an interesting statement where you said people grow up observing other adults, you know, uh, having arguments or disagreements about money. Do you think that some people actually get into their marriage expecting that this is the way it will be? Oh, that's a great question, David. And I would say 100%. Okay. 100%. That is. Now, whether we're conscious of that or we're unconscious, you know, and maybe it's probably a blend, but I, I do think that we kind of go into relationships with that relational history background, setting the stage for expectations. And let's be honest, you don't have to go far through Netflix to find a show where there's some sort of money conflict. So like we yeah. kind of expect and normalize in popular culture and media and music that like, this is just the way things are but we don't really find very constructive ways to work through conflict in a healthy way. Cause I also want to be very clear. Not all conflict is bad and not all conflict is destructive, but it's not knowing how to navigate through those differences that conflict becomes destructive to the relationship. All right. So, so everyone wants to know, did you guys buy the dental practice? Yes, we did buy the dental practice. My wife has been operating it for 10 years. Okay. And, it has continued to teach both of us many lessons about communicating about money, the value of the business. She's a, she's like so many um, practitioner business owners, but she's a healthcare provider first and foremost in her mind. That's what she values doing. She's, she didn't go into dentistry to be a business owner and to make a bunch of money as a dentist. Right. Is she grateful for the income? Are we? Yes, of course. But what she's not tracking or monitoring for, and this is not a slight against her, is just the reality is she's not thinking about the future valuation of her dental practice. She's thinking about how do I do an incredible root canal today? How do I restore someone's smile? But as the business owner side, I kind of loosely keep track of like how is revenue growing year over year? Are you raising fees mm -hmm. you have to keep track with the market? Because those things affect future valuation. And, you know, Heaven's forbid, I hope she doesn't get injured this year or next year. But if she does, I want to make sure that the business stays in a financially healthy place. Because if we got to sell it, I want it to be running as efficiently and as profitably as possible. She's not thinking about that most of the time, but is, she is focused on meeting her daily financial goals, so on and so forth. So there's, there's this ongoing conversation and awareness about what's happening there. Now, I'm also a business owner. I have my own private practice. And so she's also very attuned to it. Well, Ed... You're watching what's happening in my business 
but I'm watching what's happening in your business. Why don't you stay focused over there too? Because we need that one to be profitable too. Yeah, well, and and what you're describing as well is is the you know, how business owners tend to own different hats. Like today I'm the practitioner, you know, later tonight I'm going to be thinking in the CEO role. Um, and then, you know, on the weekend, I'm going to have to be thinking about, you know, something that needs to be moved in the office or something like that. I'm going to have my mover hat on at that moment, right? And, yes. and, and so let's explore, because when you and her first met and you got together, did you own your own business at that moment? No, I, I, don't think I would really even thought that I would ever own a business, but this was part of the, I was starting to learn about how the world works and how different career paths lead to different levels of income. Mm -hmm. So I had been reading some of the, the business success books that were highlighting that, you know, if you go into sales, that's a very high likelihood path to making much higher income business ownership. So I had some general awareness. And then I can remember she was finishing dental school when we met and, you know, so we started talking about income. And at that point, you know, I was making probably forty, forty-five thousand dollars a year as a firefighter. This is 16, 17 years ago, 20 years ago, excuse me. And she's talking about income salaries, $150,0, $200,000 for dentists, and three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars for some of her other specialist friends. Now, that's 10x if anyone's keeping track. Seven X. That's a big difference. And so my brain was trying to figure out like, how are we going to manage this? Well, what are we going to do? I started reading those trade publications and seeing mathematically how this stuff works out. So yeah, it's been, this journey has been personal before it's been professional. Okay. And, and so, you know, I think it's very different when, when uh, two people meet each other and one person is in business they are an entrepreneur that's what they're about i mean they could say that to any potential spouse they're like yeah i'm a business person this is what i do right. um and and that other person knows what they're getting involved with right there yeah it, it's an established you know it's right there on the label if you it's want kind to of the expectation like i'm right. an entrepreneur this is kind of my concept of what it means to be an entrepreneur and yeah. hopefully an entrepreneur is saying this is how i operate as an entrepreneur this is what my journey has been like so I meet a lot of people who want to buy a business potentially, and, and maybe they have that career in the big company, and then they realize somewhere mid-career, you know, I'm never going to achieve what I want. I've always had harbored this kind of dream of having my own business, or now that I've had similar experiences, similar to you, like now that I've grown and matured and learned more stuff, I realize that this is the way I should go. Um, I would imagine that some spouses may feel sort of blindsided by you know, their partner suddenly wanting to change, uh, change their stripes as it were, you know, and, and, and make these kinds of big changes. Uh, you just hit the nail on the head. Anybody that's watching my face can see on the reaction. Yes. 100%. And I think that this is, you know, when you have those kind of latent or kind of unstated money goals, expectations, especially if you haven't been talking about, like I have these aspirations for creating a much nicer life, but I'm kind of, I want, I want to play safe. The corporate track feels safe, but you finally start to realize like, well, maybe it's not so safe. There's a lot of conversations that have to happen in order to make this adjustment as relatively smooth as possible. And, and you and I both know there's certain business ventures that are very high risk mm -hmm. and hopefully high reward, right? Because we're not taking high risk for little reward, hopefully. Although I'm sure you see that. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, and this is part of the, the challenge, right? Is 
uh, as novice entrepreneurs, we can't always fully evaluate that risk reward ratio very effectively. What, mm. you know, and, and how businesses are being marketed to us as kind of a sure thing or high probability, like, are they? And so this is part of the risk that you're introducing into the couple relationship and that predictability. And so if your partner has been very used to having the stability and you have of having that every two week paycheck coming in with an annual bonus, and now you're going to cut that stream of income off, that becomes a big challenge. And that's, you know, actually, as you're talking about, I'm thinking about another couple that I was recently consulting with, with that was part of why they were coming to me is that he'd gone from a very healthy six figure income. They'd been living on that for 25 years. And then it was like, well, now I have all this industry accumulated knowledge. I'm going to go out and be an industry consultant because I can make even more money. Well, two, three years into it, he was not, he was making a fifth of what he's making. And now he's in his mid fifties and it's going to be hard to boomerang back in harder to boomerang back in after he stepped out and, you know, they have a decent amount of accumulated assets, but it's not enough to sustain the previous six figure lifestyle. So they the wife is really freaking out because she's been the one helping with all the kids and financing the kids and the kids are young adults. And now mom and dad can't support them the way they need to be supported. So there's some real difficult family conversations that need to be facilitated. So, you know, I, I've, I've met many people who have gotten into business, a lot of, a lot of people who've started up a, something fresh and they'll get into this space. I don't know. I, I'll sometimes describe it as playing business person. Right. Oh, yeah. Where where you are doing all the behaviors, you're doing all the actions, you're you're looking like you are in business. But yeah. when you look at the numbers, the numbers just aren't spelling out anything that looks like a successful business. And and they'll reach this sort of minimum viable sustainability level mm -hmm. uh, where they're just sort of getting by, but they never get into that thriving like you describe. You know, the, the person had this expectation they would make more money. Right. Now they're earning like one fifth of what they thought they were going to earn. And so, and the, the trap is sometimes is that people will get stuck in that limbo kind of yeah. where they, they won't make a definitive action to either kill it and move on right, or do the work to fix it if it's fixable mm -hmm. and, and to, and to be sort of honest and self-reflective. Uh, have you had to tell many entrepreneurs that they need to get out of business? You know, and I, I Yes. So that's a great question. And I think this is where the therapy approach skins the cat a little differently than a conventional business advice consulting, right? I think in con conventional business consulting, you get in, you gather the PL, you run the numbers, and you, you probably already have a good sense like it's not going to work. It's not pretty. They're coming to you. They've told you it's not pretty. You get in. Yeah, it's not pretty. Okay, John, you really should, based on the numbers, shut down this business, right? And it can be relatively clean and simple. You know, as a therapist, I expect that people are emotionally invested in their business and that just telling them to shut down the business is either going to entrench them further into trying to make the business work. They're going to kind of react against that. Maybe yeah. they've been getting heat from their spouse already, like to shut down the business. Why haven't you shut down the business? And so they're just getting entrenched further and further. And so it takes a little bit longer, but I'm engaging them in reflective questions about why did you get into the business? What did this initially mean to you? What hopes, dreams did you anticipate? What are you missing out on? And, you know, what do you understand now about being in this business that you couldn't have understood on the front end? 
And so just by asking them those reflective questions, they come to their own conclusion, typically that either, yeah, I'm willing to dig in and go from this minimal viable business to a thriving business, or, you know, I'm not really passionate about this anymore. You know, six, seven years ago, I got in and this was, I thought was the best thing. And I had some early success, but you know, who I am and what I think is valuable now has grown and changed. And it just, and so it's, you know, the English teacher says, kill your darlings, right? But it's easy to kind of just pick up a business and just kind of keep it going kind of in the, what you're describing that limbo state. And yet that's, that's fine for three months, six months. But if you're there for two, three, four years, you're losing really valuable time and you're eroding your relationship. Yeah, it, it breeds resentment first in family members and then in yourself uh, when you're in that position. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what, yes. So so let's talk about sort of the other scenario because business owners can fall into other sort of thinking traps, right? So another one that I've seen is the person who understands business is risky. Yeah. And so what they end up doing is they become kind of a financial hoarder. They they make a lot of money and they start stacking what what do they say? Stacking racks? Is that like the, yeah, the was, bundles of cash? Benjamins. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so they're they're piling up money and then you look at this company and the and the company's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in business savings deposits uh-huh. and the person's still afraid to increase their take home from eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. And uh, like, I mean, have you seen that kind of other extreme too? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why the lens of financial trauma makes so much sense because that's a trauma-based behavior. Right. Right. Is we're no longer reflective about what's actually happening. We're remembering what happened and we don't want to re-experience that pain. So we're swinging the pendulum hard the other side. And so usually we'll have to go through some exercises of getting them comfortable, recognizing just that this is a financial trauma response validating that they felt a lot of emotional fear and pain because this is the other thing is i think entrepreneurship is a low empathy environment okay right like yeah we all run around like it's hard it's a grind you got to struggle pull up your bootstraps whatever all those narratives are but like we never really get to just be seen and acknowledge say wow you really struggled Mm. or like wow two years ago that was really hard for you no it's like Hey, but you're successful now, so everything's okay. Which, well, yeah, but like just two years ago, like I was afraid that like I wasn't ever going to get client one or client three, you know, whatever that. So, so let's be clear. Like, you're not saying that entrepreneurs don't have empathy because I think entrepreneurs have a lot of empathy for their clients. They think about their clients all day long, what their clients want, what their clients need. You're saying that society in general doesn't have a lot of empathy for entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I think entrepreneurs don't always have empathy for themselves. Okay. And their spouses may lose empathy in the grind, right? They may lose the ability to be compassionate. They may feel resentful because they didn't talk to me about making this change or transition that's upending our life. You know, and so I think there's kind of, you got to go through this period of just being able to go back and acknowledge what it was, the toll that it was taking on you and on your family and be able to really get that to relax some. Hmm. Okay. And so take us through, you, you mentioned that a lot of the times there's some kind of financial trauma. Can, can you sort of tell us how it goes when you finally identify one of those with someone and help you, how you help them work with it? 
because obviously it doesn't go away. People have to recognize it and then they have to choose to make some changes in their behavior. How, how does that unfold? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it, it unfolds, how to describe it somewhat in phases, right? It's like, we'll say from not even really thinking about it or aware that this is, I would look at this as a financial challenge to like awareness, a little bit of kind of almost flat, like matter of factness, but sometimes there can be like almost a push into anger. Like, oh, yeah. And then as we work through that anger, then there's the sadness and the grief usually on the backside of that. That's when we process through, feel the actual feeling of sadness, we actually start to get more psychological flexibility and freedom when we grieve. So grieving is a really important psychological process. Hmm. And we don't talk about it very much in entrepreneurship, but if we can grieve, especially if we've got someone that's going to need to let go of a business, be able to grieve and let go of that business is a really important process to walk through. But it's then that they can start to take action. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, you know, in, in having this discussion and, and you bringing up, uh, you know, the, the discussion of grieving, I remember back to my own divorce um, mm -hmm. when I, I finally was in a different household and it, it was quite an adjustment. And uh, I went and spoke with someone about it with a counselor. And what yeah. she explained was, is like, you have to grieve not only the loss of the relationship, but you have to grieve the loss of the lifestyle and the way you lived. So it was like, the Saturday morning routine with the kids and making pancakes or whatever it was like that, just all of these right. things that were just not going to happen again. There, right. there had to be some period of adjustment and reconciliation. I, I, I know like, you know, in my own experience, uh, I was in the business brokerage business and that's just a crazy roller coaster of cash flow. And yeah. I made videos about my experience in that business, but Towards the end, there was definitely a stress that was brought into the household from that financial uncertainty. And uh, while I'm certain my marriage would have ended anyway, I, I think that it precipitated that that uh, that action, right? And it was really when I was faced with that, that's when I had to objectively take a look at things and say, you know what? If I was advising myself as a client, I'd be advising myself to get out of this business which is what I you know finally ended up having to do. Um, the we have a couple of questions here from people in the audience. you want you want to see some of this stuff? Um, yeah. first of all, we've got uh, Hendrick from Tampa says hello. Hey, good to see you today, Hendrick. Uh, Jason's asking, how do you best navigate when the spouse doesn't want anything to do with the business? but you need guidance as to what risks they are willing to take. Is there a relative apathy or forced ignorance? What do you think about this? Oh, yeah, I see this all the time. Um, so one, just to acknowledge you're not alone in this reality and experience. And I think that there's probably a couple of paths that I would encourage you to consider is one, this is taking a self-responsibility is what's your emotional energy when you show up to talk to your spouse about this? Are you coming from a humble, empathic, curious place? Or are you coming from a hyper excited? Like, this is the best thing ever. This is great. I can't believe it. I want to do this. I have to do this. Or a, a little bit more of a fearful, anxious, like, oh, I really want to do this, but I'm not really sure. Because mm. right? those three emotional stances communicate something very different to your, your spouse and how they're going to respond to those. Right? And whether this is your first time into entrepreneurship or this is multiple times in, they're gonna have that history. So 
we want to be thoughtful about that. I think the middle position of being empathic and curious and humble, especially if they're shutting down around it, is probably going to be your most likely successful approach to get them talking and open. But if you're going in trying to convince them why this is the business you should be in or why your family should be in it, you're not really listening to them. You're making a case. And so we want to shift that paradigm and just become more and more curious about what are their fears, their concerns, their anxieties about being in business. So we want to just ask with no judgment or saying, well, that's stupid or that's ridiculous or that's not going to happen. Those are all kind of minimizing statements. And I don't think we intend to do it that way. We're, we probably often are tending to do it to try to allay fears. Mm. But what it ends up doing is creating more fear and anxiety. Yeah. So that's one piece of this puzzle. And then I think the second piece of the puzzle is what's your, your partner's family history been around business and business success and failure? And that there's usually some real gold nuggets in there. And I think oftentimes I'll work with partners where they know the family history, but they don't understand the full emotional impact of that history. So it's like, okay, yeah, I know your dad's business failed when you were 12 years old and that meant you guys had to downsize the house and now you're no longer able to go to the private school. But like, what did that actually feel like? Mm. How much fear, how much anxiety, how much arguing did they hear in that whole process in that period of time? And how has their brain made associations that business is risky, dangerous, scary, bad? And so if someone out there is uh, single and anticipates getting married, what, like what should people be exploring even before they, they tie the knot? If, they, if they're watching this channel, then they're thinking about business, right? And so, so yeah. I mean, should more of this stuff be explored before people decide to pair up? 100%. Yeah, I think this is all part of that category of getting to know each other. Right. When we're in early stages of intimate relationship, ideally we're getting to know each other in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. And for the points of this conversation, what I would say is you want to be asking questions empathically um, with open-ended questions about what experiences has your family had around business? Where have they seen success in business? Where have there been challenges? What concerns would you have if I wanted to be in entrepreneurship if you're not already in it? Or what concerns do you have about me being in entrepreneurship if you're already in it? Um, because that's those types of questions are going to give you a lot of feedback. And what you're looking for in those questions is the answer, but also their comfort in providing answers. So if they're shutting down the conversation, that's a, a sign that there's financial trauma there. If they're getting really angry or anxious, that's also likely a sign there's some financial trauma there. If they're able to just say reflectively, you know, yeah, my dad, when I was 12, his business failed. It was really hard on our family. Um, we talked about it as a family. We were love. We still loved each other. We worked together to solve the problem. And, you know, I really wouldn't love to go through another one of those experiences. But if it, it happened, I know we can get through it. Someone said something like that. Game on. Let's get married. Right, because it, it demonstrates there's been some reflection. Right, exactly. The reflective process is the sign that we've moved from it being traumatic to being more resolved. Right. And that's, that's a general rule when we think about any type of trauma is if people can talk reflectively about their traumatic experience, that means that they're further along the healing journey. 
if they cannot look backwards and see any pain in their past, they're probably burying it to keep themselves safe. If they become angry and reactive about some painful thing in the past, that also means it's still unresolved. Yeah. So, so what comes to mind is, is, uh, someone getting into someone doing something like a sport and they get into some kind of accident where they're injured. And of course, in the moment it's very scary and everything, but then a month later, it's like a story. It's like a happy hour story, you know, about the, about this big risk or danger they took and the excitement around it. It's like, it's, yeah. it, it doesn't carry any of the really fearful emotions that it did in the moment. Right. They're able to go, they get through their PT and rehab and they get back out there and they're running the diamond again and they're not afraid to slide. Maybe they slid into second base, they broke their ankle. And I was like, oh, okay, well that was, you know, yeah, that sucked, but that was kind of a freak accident and I got the support I needed to get through it. Versus someone that maybe you know, never recovered, was criticized like, well, you were so stupid for signing a second. It's just a fun game. What's wrong with you? But they might be a very different response to that same thing. And it's, it's the same thing with our money is what the research says about trauma in general. I think it applies. So it'll, it can apply for our financial lives is the event is bad, is problematic, but it's really the relational experience after the event, the ability to be acknowledged and seen alleviates the stress or moves us through it. But if we get criticized or judged or shamed, or we can't talk about it, or we get rejected, that kind of like pushes the trauma deeper into the wound, hmm. right? We don't actually get to address or deal with it. And so, no, we don't want to go around looking for bad experiences, but it's how we're cared for after the bad experience that determines whether it becomes more resolved or more unresolved. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, uh, Victor has a question here. He says, how do you reconcile the two disciplines? Financial advice is emotionally superficial and intellectual, logical, whereas therapy is emotionally intense in a way that financial advice is not. So, like, you know, if, if me and my spouse were in a session with you, would you be saying, like, literally, from this point of view, I could say this, from this point of view, I could say that, like, how, how do you deliver these two things? Yeah, Victor, I really appreciate your awareness of these two worlds. And it is a question that I continue to grapple with for myself, quite honestly, is, and you almost do have to be of two minds. And in the context, you, you do kind of shift between these roles of, you know, here's what the data is saying. And then shift, which would be the financial planner, right? Here's what your retirement projection says. Here's what your business valuation means for your financial plan. Then the therapy side becomes more about processing and meaning making. Well, what does this mean to you? How are you responding? What feelings are you having coming up? And so we're going into a reflective question act, asking stance. And we may, I may turn a couple and say, you know, what are you hearing, Mary, about this? What are you seeing? Joe, what are you seeing? If we want to deepen, we might say, well, what does this mean for your family? Now, how does this help you reconcile that you have achieved the financial goals that you thought that you wanted to, right? So I'm thinking about meaning making while also running the retirement projection. So it, I think it's really trying to be in a both and mindset, not a, it's either this or it's that. Um, right. Okay. Um, Jason asked a question, and I think this is when we were talking about um, people who who stick to something even though it's not working. He says, is that why some owners who are at retirement age would rather go down with the ship? Um, 
That's a good question. Yeah, there's, you know, I'm always, go ahead. And and I've seen this. So I have, I I can, I'm just thinking right now, uh, there's at least four situations I can think of with business owners in their 60s and 70s whose business started to have trouble. And instead of pulling the plug on the business, they've actually drained their retirement savings trying to support a money losing business to the point that they the whole thing just came to an end. Like, and it, it it's terrible because the the business, which was a good business for a long time, and I, and I know that when things turn south, people will sometimes say, oh, you know, recovery's around the corner. We just have to make it till next quarter and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But sure. after eight eight such quarters, you should realize that there's something wrong, right? Or or whatever. But but I've seen this, and it's almost like people are stuck in their their habit of of flow and they don't know how to get out of it. Um, do, do you have experience with this when, you know, in your counseling? Yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. I'm thinking about a, a client that came to consult with me, but I didn't end up getting the chance to work with them, but there was very much, you know, that's the first one that's coming to mind. But I think what we want to be asking ourselves from a psychological perspective is a couple of things is one is, business owners identity with the business gets so tightly interwoven. Mm-hmm. And so helping them to differentiate that I, I am separate from my business. This yeah. doesn't solve that, that problem that we're describing right now. Like it's a little late for that. Right. But this is just a warning for all of us as business owners. It's like, we need to keep our own identity separate from the business. Like we, like you are you and the business is, is its own thing. And yes, you work in the business and you own it, but you still are your own person with your own at many other identity levels. But I think it also can be, and this is the therapist kind of speaking, is what's the approach that when we have this conversation with that 60, 70 year old person whose business is now going in decline? And I think unfortunately what we end up doing more often than not is approaching it as a logical problem. We're showing them the reports, the month, the quarterly PLs that are showing the decline. We're showing them the saying, your retirement is going down. What are you doing? This is crazy. Don't do this. Stop doing this. The data says that don't do it. But we're approaching an emotional problem from with a logical solution. Right. And what we need to be able to do is to show up and say, Sally, we know that you've you have spent the last 30 years growing this business and you've had some incredible years and decades. I imagine this business has just meant the world to you. And then you shut up and you let them talk for a little bit. And you say, I imagine it's also really hard to see the business being where it's at right now. And and you probably feel some sense of like a failure or like you just don't know what to do. This is not how you thought things would end. You want to go out on a high note, not a low note. And they probably say, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I wonder what it would be like, how could we, finish this business well, even though it's not finishing the place that you want it. Right. And so we're asking reflective questions about how they can exit. And, you know, in the, in the scope of this, this conversation, we're not going to go through that whole process, but I'm giving you kind of a sense of how we can approach it, how from a financial therapy perspective, we're asking self-reflective questions to get them to think about what it would be Mm. like knowledge is we're stroking and validating that they have put a lot of effort, that there is loss, that there is some feelings of grief, um, that it may be really hard because now you're not going to be able to fulfill some of the retirement dreams or goals that you had because you thought the business would be able to provide this. 
how can we adjust or work with what you had expected? Maybe you had a you know legacy intention, like I want to send all my kids to grand grandkids to college. Yeah. You know, so whatever that's where knowing the person, knowing what what are their motivations to try to keep it going, what are their motivations to keep it restored, and being able to ask them and then ask them about all their other ways to fulfill the underlying value. So is there another way to help your grandkids get the college education that's so important to you? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, that you talk about the, about the intertwining of the entrepreneur and the business, because I remember when I was facing that decision to get out of my business brokerage office, um, one of the people I reached out to was uh, a fellow who was never directly a client, but owned many businesses. And I mm -hmm. knew that he had closed one. Mm -hmm. And I called him up and I just said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at making some changes. I wanted to talk with you about that business you closed. You know, was it hard for you? Was it a challenge? All this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and he just responded very, and, and, and he, you know, I was being emotional. He was not. He was being very logical. He, he just said, businesses or assets are supposed to put money in your pocket. That one wasn't. So why would I want it? Right. And in that moment, I got out of my feelings. I was just like, duh, of course. Right. And, and now, but I mean, that's me. <clears throat> I'm normally in, in a very logical place anyway. Um, and I don't know. So I think that's actually a really interesting point, David, right? Because this is part of that, that we want to recognize how are people wired, mm. right? Is maybe sometimes you're lost in your emotions and you need that logical push and just kind of the detached from the emotion and Right. But for some of us, like we need to be seen and heard and met with empathy, uh, the softer side before we're ready to transition. And so this is where also knowing the person really can matter. Yeah. Like, and I'll, and I'll tell you, like the, the, what I was dealing with is I was thinking to myself, if I close this business or get out of this business, yeah. um, will, will that then mean that because the business has failed, that I am a failure, that I'm, you know, mm -hmm. not, good at stuff at this business stuff right uh -huh. and and you know no that uh, th that was the fear and that that was the thing that was hanging up with me yeah. but then at the moment i saw the the office and the business as something apart from me it, mm -hmm. it became very easy yeah yeah and I, I do think there's yeah i mean for you absolutely and, and i think for a lot of people is getting, getting getting that separation from i am not my business Hmm. And that's easier for some businesses than others. So uh, there's an interesting new question in the chat here from Ivan, but I want to uh, ask you another question first. Uh, there's a, a well-known stat that the divorce rate is like 50%, you know, yeah. which simply means that every year X number of people get married, 50% yeah. of that are the number of people that get divorced. Right. Right. So, um, so we know that these kinds of money and financial and business stresses can lead people towards the ending of a relationship. But do you have any insight into this question? If, if I really have that drive to be an entrepreneur and I want to get into business or buy a business or, or whatever to be an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and the, the friction in the relationship, I, maybe I make the decision to, to preserve the marriage and I don't pursue my dreams. What's the long-term outcome of that? Like, do you do you meet people who you know have their 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 joie de vivre sort of drained out of them because they've never been allowed to pursue what they feel is their passion? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that, and that's the challenge is how do you grow as a couple through this, right? And so that's another lens or frame that I bring when I'm working with clients is how do we grow through this? How do we see this tension as an opportunity to grow for both of you? How do we know each other? How do we know, understand what that, why your partner is so motivated to be an entrepreneur and really at a deep level? And why you as the other spouse are so resistant to that at a deep level. And usually at those roots, they start to, they start to intertwine a little bit more and you can build some more empathy and compassion and get a little more flexibility around it. You know, and I do think, you know, sometimes you get to an immutable or impasse and some people do have to part ways. Right. And this is, you know, not, not the message I love bringing or, you know, I don't lead with that. Um, I try to give every opportunity possible for the marriage and the business journey to work both and for there to not be resentment building in, in either of those places. But just in general, as humans, if we're in a, an environment where resentment is building in any part of our life, it's going to seep through into the other areas. So we cannot compartmentalize as much as we think we can. Yeah, and, and, and I think at, at one time, yeah, there were these pressures in society that made people just have to live with these things. You know, they're, they're like, well, I'm married. This is the person I chose and it's not, you know, acceptable in my community or whatever to be divorced. So we're just going to yeah. have to make it work. But, but, but now that's not there. Well, I wish it was not, I wish it was that black and white. There is a growing cultural acceptance that divorce is tolerable, acceptable. It's not a moral failing. There's also a lessening of religious let's just name it typically religious institutions are the ones that have set that standard that marriage is forever and unbreakable and in the eyes of god if you break the marriage there are consequences hmm. and right that is still very real for very many very large number of people that lives on in the memories of many of us right and so i think when i'm working with my clients is i'm asking a lot of questions what is the meaning of marriage what is the purpose of marriage and, you know, less for me to define that specifically for any one couple and more for me to help them come up with a meaningful definition to the two of them. Um, but, you know, I think that if in my own value system, David, part of marriage is personal growth and development. Like marriage serves as a very close mirror to what's happening. You do something mm -hmm. in marriage, you get feedback very quickly. They do something yeah. marriage, they get feedback pretty quickly. How do we use that mirroring process to grow and develop as, as humans? How do we heal? How do we change the patterns? How do we move a marriage from obligation to choice and desire? Because most of us have a really hard time doing things that we're obligated to do for a long time with joy. Yeah. But if we're doing yeah. something because we want to and because we have choice and we have freedom, a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're talking about the difference between, you know, work versus mm -hmm. what we want to do. Right. right. And, and we always think about that in the context of where we go every day to spend time to earn money. Yeah. But, but, you know, within a relationship too, it can be that way. Yeah. Good point. I, there's, there's a question here from Ivan and he says, I tried to do five startups and ultimately failed at all of them. I am 33 and still have never had a serious girlfriend, single, no kids. I want to get a successful business going first. 
And what, what I find interesting about this comment in the context of what we're saying here is that there was once a time where people would pair up and get married quite young and both people would be kind of be ma making a bet on the future of their marriage and the prospects of each partner at that time. Sure. And today people tend to be pairing off a little bit later in life and kind of like, oh, let's just wait and see how these this other person turns out before I make a commitment. Well, you know, are you seeing, um, you know, do you think that Ivan's plan is one that makes sense? Yes. And Ivan, one, I just appreciate your vulnerability and acknowledging like, you know, yeah, I've had five failed businesses. There is no shame in that. Not from my perspective, right? Like kudos to you for being able to show up here today and just say that and that you're at 33. And I think, you know, this is, you know, there's always several, the therapist in me is always like, Dave, there's multiple lenses to look at this. I wish there's one lens, but getting to financial footing and stability, I think is a, is increase your own sense of self-efficacy and self-worth. And so you you may attract a higher quality mate because let's just be honest in the dating market, not all participants are equal. Right. Some are more desirable to partner with and some are less. And if we're really struggling with our own sense of self-worth and value, and we've had this series of businesses that have failed and it is impacting our sense of self, we may be inclined to pick a partner that is either one going to try to be a hero and rescue us, problematic, or someone that just also has maybe, you know, beat up or softened self-worth. Self so we want to really work on our self-worth side of things too and make sure that that's intact. And I mean, I don't know you, so we're not getting to have that conversation. But that would just be something I would be asking yourself. But I do think, you know, from the family planning standpoint, that the reality is, yes, um, the ability to conceive children pushes later and later, but there is still a finite period of time. Hmm. And so, you know, if having children is important to you in the context of an intimate relationship, you may have to make some of that trade-off decision and just be upfront with whoever you're in the dating pool with. And one of the things that we haven't talked about, but I would really encourage many entrepreneurs to look, to look into is, I know a lot of entrepreneurs love different personality type systems to better understand themselves and their clients. And one of the ones that I have really come to find be very helpful is something called attachment styles. Okay. And this grows out of the psychology of attachment theory. It's been studied for the last 80 years. And why I like this is because it's, it looks at people through a relational lens and it connects why you're doing or not doing things in relationships based on your relational history. So compared to like a, a disc profile or a Myers-Briggs or some people like the Enneagram, where it just says, well, you're this type, but you don't really know like why you're this type or that type. You know, attachment theory really gives some explanation for why am I, and, and the four categories in attachment are secure, anxious, avoidant, or disorganized. Okay. Right. And it, there's science that helps show, well, why am I this way? And for a lot of people, that can be very validating is threading through the theme of my life and the way that I've experienced relationships. So Ivan, I would say, you know, I encourage you to look into attachment styles and see like, do you have one of the anxious, avoidant or disorganized attachment styles that may be creating some relational anxiety for you about partnering too? Um, now we just have a few minutes left. 
but sure. there's there's been this huge explosion of comments in the in the chat about uh about prenups or marriage contracts oh so yeah. so why don't we why don't we just finalize with uh, some commentary about the validity or value in doing that because um i know that uh i did it in my marriage i we, yeah. we had a marriage contract and it forced a lot of topics to the surface that probably would never have been addressed before I got married. And while the marriage was not successful, uh, the determination or summation of the marriage was a heck of a lot easier because we had that document put together. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like we would need a whole other pot, you know, episode to, to go through this very important topic. But it, it is an important topic. I am not an attorney. So I'm coming from the lens of a therapist, not an attorney. And so I'm not looking at the legal ramifications. What I'm looking at is the psychological meaning of the prenup, right? So that's only one part of this total picture, but <clears throat> depending on how you talk about an approach, placing the prenuptial into the relationship will determine on whether it's a wedge or a support structure for the both of you. Mm. What do I mean by that is, if you take it from an adversarial mis place of mistrust, it's going to be a wedge between the two of you. That's going to be very hard to, to cross. If you take it from a place of we're designing this together collaboratively for our, both of our best future outcomes, because if our relationship is ending in the future, we're probably not going to be real happy with each other. So this document is being designed to help support both our future selves to the best that we can anticipate now, it's going to be a platform to support the two of you. Hmm. Right. And so it's just a very different mindset approach. Um, so that, that would be my biggest encouragement is how are you going into asking for this? And if you're going into it, cause I'm afraid of being taken advantage of completely understandable. There are probably relational history, financial experiences in the background that makes sense out of that. But if that's the psychological energy you have, a prenuptial will not fix that for you. And so you're going to need to work through that financial anxiety and fear of mistrust and being taken advantage of relationally and work towards building over time relational trust around money. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, one, uh, one lawyer that I had spoken to about it many years prior to getting married, basically described it as, you know, working out the formula for disillusion while you're still, you know, in each other's camp kind of thing, while you're still <laughs> in love with each other. Right. Um, so that when things go, uh, you know, sideways, that you've already predetermined how things are going to be going to be taken care of. Um, and it, you know, it just, in, in my case, it just simplified things dramatically, because it was like, you know, open to this page, here's what we said we were going to do. And yeah. here's how it goes. And it was very, very clear and easy to follow. And um, and we avoided a lot of the, you know, catastrophes you hear about of people spending, you know, huge sums of money with, you know, legal battles and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, the only people that end up rich in those situations are the attorneys. It's true. All right. Well, th this has been great, Ed. Uh, if anyone is interested in you or the other content you put out or want to follow you, connect with you, what, what is the best way for them to find you online? Yeah, the best way to start is healthy love and money.com that's my website from there you can find my attachment style quiz you can find my book uh my podcast and my blog so um and then the social media links are all there so let healthy love and money be the, the hub to start um if, if anything that i've shared is resonant for you awesome 
And I'm going to update that in the YouTube uh, show notes. And uh, this is going to be available later on uh, all the audio tracks as well as a podcast. And I want to say a big thank you, Ed. This has been a great conversation. And, uh, it's, you know, I think most people, everyone on this who watches this channel is interested in business. But I think most people have an ambition to also have a successful partnership, uh, a successful romantic partnership in life. And, and this is uh, the kind of stuff that people need to think about. Yes, we want both. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in live. And uh, whether you're live or watching the the the, the rebroadcast or you're watching a, a replay, please hit the like button, share it with anyone that you think might be able to take advantage of this message. Uh, and with that, I'm going to say see you later. And we'll see you next time. Bye. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor, Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.